Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now today we're going to be talking about the Gloucester Report and the emerging ramifications for the future of how the UK Financial Conduct Authority will be expected to operate. With me to begin to unpick the future of UK conduct regulation are Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor of Regulatory Risk at TRRI, and Rachel Walcott, Senior Editor of Risk and Compliance at TRRI. Now, Dame Elizabeth Gloucester's near 500-page report was published back in late 2020. She was asked to conduct an independent investigation into the FCA's regulatory oversight of London Capital and Finance PLC. That went into administration in 2019, leaving, sadly, 11,600 investors with a combined loss of £236 million sterling. The FCA is tasked with delivering effective supervision and against which the findings of the Gloucester report were deeply critical in terms of both process and culture. Now, Gloucester's nine main recommendations have been accepted by the FCA. The Treasury Select Committee is holding a series of hearings into Gloucester's findings and on hearing on the 1st of March, Nikhil Raffi and Charles Randall, now that's respectively the Chief Executive and Chairman at the FCA, gave a progress update on how they were taking Gloucester's recommendations forward. And it's that future we're going to be chatting about today. So, Lindsay, Rachel, welcome as ever. What did the FCA have to say? Hello, Susanna. Um, I'll kick off, shall I? And Rachel, you chime in uh, when you feel the need. So I I, want to start with a positive, um, and that is on training. So Gloucester's recommendations one and three broadly uh, highlight the the lack of uh, intellectual challenge and Ability to read a set of accounts is putting it bluntly, but uh, the report is very blunt in places. So what that means is very quickly, the FCA has actually stepped in to correct that. And Rafi, uh, Nicole Rafi gave an update at the Treasury Set Committee about the progress of a training uh, module that has been put in place for all of the um, frontline authorization and supervisory and enforcement staff. And so basically they can now uh, understand the financial information in front of them. And this also has an impact on the um, what what is, is being called the single firm view uh, in that they now know to look at the entirety of a firm and not just what is on the balance sheet on the side that is being regulated. Um, Rachel, do you want to talk a little bit more about the single person view, single firm view rather? Sure, sure. So at uh, the Treasury Select Committee, uh, uh, Nikhil Rathi and Charles Randall talked a lot about technology challenges at the regulator, which Dame Elizabeth had identified as an their poor technology had been an impediment to finding harm amongst the huge cohort of firms they regulate, as well as uh, kind of joining the dots when 
as Lindsay was saying, the one uh, some problems were found in one part of a firm to you know potentially look at the rest of the firm. So one of the things that uh, Rathi mentioned that the FCA was doing now is really interesting, and that is building some dashboards. And the first one is a single view of a firm. So this would have all the different information, like Lindsay said, on a single dashboard about a firm. And he said they were doing a pilot this month for the consumer investments population, which is obviously the segment most under scrutiny by the Gloucester Review. And he said that they were going to uh, roll it out and test it during the year and later on in the year do some risk assurance on the work and deliver that as part of their improvement in terms of supervision. He also said a lot of different things about uh, industrializing indicators, having more warning signals available to FCA staff and supervisors to warn them that things were potentially going wrong at firms. Part of this is they've uh, hired uh, a new, well, their first chief data information and intelligence officer, and her name is Jessica Russo. She's going to be in charge of making the data flow and the intelligence floor flow more efficiently at the FCA, which is going to be a, a, a pretty significant task. Uh, Bailey, at his TSC uh, appearance, said that they'd already spent $230 million on improving technology. And... <sighs> It's, yeah, it's a, we're, we're it's not really, quite sure. It'd be interesting to see what that was actually spent on. Um, yeah, yeah, given that yeah. given that uh, Nicole Raffi seems to have come in and decided that there needs to be more more change. Um, mm. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and Rachel and I have spoken about in our experience, a new chief technology person wants to probably set their own way. So it's interesting that this piece of work is underway and being piloted and the chief technology officer is not actually, a chief data and information officer is not actually arriving for another three, four months. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think for me, if, if you, you draw a parallel with the firm itself, the chief executive sets the direction of travel and says, we want to go that way. It's for the data officer, information officer, to enable you to get to where you need to be. Um, I would like to think that the chief executive is setting the direction and the chief data officer is making that happen. But that does rather beg the question what 230 million was spent on if these gaps seem as profound as Dame Elizabeth has suggested and as also the new chief executive has suggested. Um, Absolutely. Difficult for them. It is really difficult for them and Rathi's emphasis on the industrialization of these indicators and risk triggers, you know, the idea of this single view of a firm, he wants to roll that out to more uh, segments in different portfolios. You do wonder why, why they didn't have something like that already. They did say at the TSC that what they had now in terms of a dashboard was rather manual, 
which made me think that it was potentially a shared document uh, on an Excel spreadsheet or something along those lines, because generally manual is short term for a spreadsheet or a PDF file, which is, again, Susanna knows this is having this kind of enterprise wide information in a single view is something that all firms really struggle with. And actually enterprise wide uh, risk management was something that uh, Rafi mentioned mm-hmm. at TSC as well. So it seems like they're really trying to expand their ability to peer into into firms. Well, well, let's be clear. You can't supervise a firm unless you see all of it. Mm. Um, and certainly back in the days when I put my head of compliance hat on, when we did close and continuous, because I tended to work for the bigger firms and they were under close and continuous supervision, the impression, and I will leave it as impression, we got from the regulator that they did have a single view of us as a firm, but we didn't really question whether that was on the back of an envelope or you know, some high-tech dashboard. So it does sound, and, and obviously we will have to see how it pans out, it does sound as though it's not only a sensible suggestion, but it's a good direction of travel for them. Absolutely, Susanna. I think it's fair to say it's a, it's a, a positive um, outcome from Gloucester. And, you know, we really do hope that it's, it's achievable and deliverable soon. Yeah. So yeah. if I jump now to um, look at talk about the in, what I'm going to group together um, investors and marketing uh, there there are a few things to unpack here and so uh, I'm going to start with the authorizations and financial promotions now there was obviously um, part of the issue with Gloucester just to recap is was that the the marketing the whole issue of of the easiness of signing off marketing and um advertising and uh charles randall at the treasury set committee actually said you know when he started out uh this was a this was a very very there was a very small number of of firms that would actually do this and now everybody can can do this and he wants that rolled back so that it's 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 much more and the it's it's much more back to how it was in the old days um how we understand this is going to be taken forward is uh, there was an hm treasury consultation last year which closed in july which had a couple of options but the the general gist of both of them was that the actual signing off of uh, financial adverts would uh, would now become an authorised um, activity in and of itself. Um, there is, though, however, silence since that consultation. There's been no feedback statement. There's been no um, legislative proposal from the government. It's not in the financial services bill. Um, so... There's a. We're not quite sure where we are and how quickly this is going to be delivered. Well, Lindsay, this also links into some a wall that uh, Gloucester and the FCA are running up against in terms of the online harms part of the approach to tackling fraud and investment scams. Uh, obviously, in uh, the in the LCNF situation. 
a lot of the problem came that these mini bonds were advertised online and Rathi was adamant uh, last week that he wanted something to be included in the online harm bill about this. What happened? Linz? Yeah, I mean, this is not the first time he has said this. He's been very vocal and um, he is not he is not the only one. Um, Andrew Bailey has previously said this needs to go in the so financial a definition of financial harm needs to go in the online safety bill. Um, there there seems to be a real disconnect here between what the regulator wants and what the Treasury is going willing to offer. Um, the Treasury has steadfastly said it's it's not going in the online safety bill, but there's n they've never really articulated why. Um, the uh, minutes from the uh, perimeter meeting that uh, Rathi and um, the Treasury, uh, well, John Glenn at the Treasury had in January, uh, again, uh, bring this up. And it, it, the minute just notes that the government's preferred option is to take it forward in some, in the Department from Culture, Media and Sports online advertising uh, work stream. But it ends there. I tried to pick up with DCMS what's happening with that work stream. There was a consultation it closed in March last year. There's been no feedback statement. There's been no policy recommendation or a legislative recommendation. So there's really this this void. It's not going to happen in the online safety bill, but we don't know what is being proposed. And actually, it was quite palpable at the Treasury Select Committee hearing um, uh, Nicole Raffi's frustration with this um, th th this whole space. He, he you know, he's, he he. I'm paraphrasing, but what he he said was, I don't understand what the reluctance is, why there's a reluctance to do this. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, so that's where we are with online safety, the, um, sorry, with financial, financial uh, harm in the online safety bill. The um, FCA has repeatedly asked for it. The government has complete has repeatedly declined to do it, and that's sort of stuck. Um, and we now seem to be getting into this kind of space with the financial what has been promised in the uh, financial advertising space as well, in in terms of authorizing them. Um, sorry, Rachel. Uh, I was just going to ask about that about the, the, you know the authorization of promotions, uh, the, the ongoing whack a mole that the FCA is playing in terms of stopping people from advertising uh, unregulated products uh, with the FCA regulated uh, logo. And there was also uh, some other comments made at uh, Treasury Select Committee about the uh, sophisticated investor thresholds that were of particular concern to Rathi, and I think was in one of the um, recent FCA consultations. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just on the Wacomo point, um, it's not just the UK regulator that have this have have this issue. Um, I wrote a couple of years ago that the, about just the sheer volume. It's thousands and thousands a year that the Irish regulators. In fact, this morning the Irish regulator did another four um, warnings about unauthorized firms. The French, the French, the AMF spends an awful lot of resource on this. And um, Nicola Raffi uh, said at the Treasury Sector Committee they actually have fifty full time staff working on these unauthorized firms. Um, so you know that's a, 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 you wonder if you know if if Google etc had to take more responsibility for who gets to uh, appear at the top of their uh, 
Google Ads um, list, whether you know that would be a resource that could be freed up um, and go elsewhere. But jumping on to sophisticated investors. So um, what Rathi had actually said was um, the UK definition for sophisticated investors. It's kind of it's a twofold test, as I'm, I'm sure you know, Susanna. Part of it is a is an asset test of two hundred fifty thousand pounds of of in, investable assets, so not your not your property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is also a, a sort of you have to self certify yourself as being knowledgeable and you know mm-hmm. ex- realizing that you can lose your your hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's a skills <laughs> test effectively. Do you know? I mean, you may well be very wealthy, but that doesn't mean you know anything about investing. Yeah. So yes, yeah. yes. But, but so so how this came up at the Treasury Select Committee was um, Nicole Raffi was actually asked. You've banned mini bonds, but is there anything else that's for retail investors? But is there anything else in this space that still concerns you? And he, and he said, yes. He said, you know, there are far too many people being coached through how to tick that box on the sophisticated investor side. Um, and he he said, you know, other countries, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, their sophisticated investor asset test, you know, so that first part is way higher than is here. And he said it was it was two two million. I I looked it up. It's one point four in in pounds and sterling is the exchange rate, the Australian one anyway. And also, um, it hasn't actually the UK test hasn't been changed in twenty years. So if you if you think about it, it probably should just be up. If even if it was uplifted for inflation, it would be a lot higher than where it is. So um, yes. So what is actually happening with this? So. Um, the wasn't it in yeah yeah, yeah sorry so yeah so there's yeah it was so the court the um call for input um on and uh, retail investments uh that closed in december i think it was um it has a it has some a section on sophisticated investors basically asking both consumers and financial advisors um what you know what what they think about the threshold where it should be what they think and you know, have they used it for have they used it um you know and changes so there's a whole series of questions around that so i checked with the fca um this month on what the status of that is there they received a lot of responses apparently and they're working on a feedback statement but i suppose if you think about how regulation gets changed in the uk the um the feedback statement would lead to a legislative proposal which treasury would have to take forward so again this any change here is not going to happen instantly and not for the foreseeable future. So, yeah. So good that they're thinking about it. It would be nice if we actually had a timeline for taking it forward. Yeah, I think that's going to be the rub going forward because on top of everything else, the Treasury and the FCA and the PRA and the bank are trying to figure out what to do just in general with the uh, the regulatory framework in the United Kingdom. And by the time they drill down to the sophisticated investor levels, uh, that could be a while. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think the other thing that comes into play when you're looking at sophisticated investors and how they, they as well as other investors, can be damaged is the regulatory perimeter. What mm-hmm. is it, what is or should be authorised and what isn't? Um, and I am hopeful that it also the regulatory perimeter will not only be policed a little bit better with all of this, but also where the re- re- regulatory perimeter actually is will continue to flex, even if that takes time to flex it. 
Yeah, I think that was something that permeated the Gloucester report was this idea about the of the perimeter, perimeter uh, when and where the regulator should be looking beyond the perimeter. And that was a part of the dashboard that Rathi talked about, that one of the indicators they would be looking at is regulated revenue at a firm versus unregulated revenue, which brings me nicely onto the next thing to talk about, <laughs> which is authorizations. Oops. Oh, I just want to throw in the use of the FCA logo before before we skip to, jump to authorizations, if I may. So w one of the things that Rafi said in, in the in this, this whole um, marketing of unregulated products was that they were looking at um, basically banning the use of any mention of an FCA uh, authorization or registration in an advert for an unregulated product. And of course, this this was actually how a lot of people were misled into the mini bonds was because these firms were using their FCA authorization on an unregulated product. And, and that distinction is, was lost on a lot of people and, and, you know, and, and actually abused, you know, that's what, you know, Gloucester found. It was, it was deliberately the halo effect, she called it. Um, so Rathi had mentioned they were going to move this. I did a little bit of digging around and I, there's nothing in the, um, in the financial services bill on this. There's, um, however, I did look at the, um, in, at the FCA, um, handbook and, I was wondering if maybe, you know, as part of the Treasury Select Committee, Rathi was talking about being braver, um, you know, getting the lawyers to be braver in some of the challenges that they do. And I did wonder if this was one of the areas where maybe they were going to be braver because they can stop anything on the grounds that's clear, fair or not, mis or not misleading. And so it would be misleading potentially to have the FCA logo attached to an ad for an unregulated product. So I don't know. That's just me. Um guessing uh, because, you know, there, there's very little detail around there. But I think, I think, you know, in terms of positives, that would be a great thing just to just to get the FCA logo off these products. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, anyway, Rich, you wanted to pick up on authorization. Well, I don't know. Did, Susanna, did you want to add something? I, I was just going to say it's uh, Lindsay mentioned 50 people um, looking for unauthorized firms playing, you're going to probably need some pretty sophisticated systems to be able to trawl the entire depth and breadth of the internet for rogue FCA logos. But you're do you know who has those use... systems? Oh, yes. So <laughs> why not use them? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's quite funny. In case I was being too subtle, I was meaning these the social media firms there. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, Susanna and Lindsay, because one of the impressions that I got from the TSE uh, comments from Charles Randall that he has turned himself into a uh, human web scraper coming into uh, the office every morning and firing off some emails about some random stuff that he's seen online that he's worried about. So th I, that's something that's happening for sure. And he seemed genuinely uh upset about that because i think he recognizes the enormity of the task at hand and maybe he's taking the every little bit helps approach in terms of uh turning stuff up on an, on his own but i also got the impression that people were emailing him directly and saying you know what is this uh is this a, is this good or not and uh 
you know, like I was saying, one of the indicators they're looking going to be looking at now in terms of this uh, divide between regulated income, so income money that firms are earning from regulated businesses and money that firms are earning from unregulated business like the mini bonds. So that'll be an indicator in future that, for example, if a firm is earning 99% of its income through unregulated business, that could be an indicator that it's only using its FCA authorization as a kind of badge to make them seem okay. And this is something that the FCA announced they were going to be doing something about immediately in the wake of the Gloucester Report's publication. And that is what Rathi calls the use it or lose it. So they'll be trying to see... Yes. To, to be absolutely clear, that has always been, in theory, the approach of the F or the regulator. You you could not and should not apply for an authorization you weren't going to use, and if you weren't using an authorization, you should have given it back. And somehow this feels like history repeating itself a little bit. Yes. Um, there might have been something in there that made it difficult for the FCA because now they've turned to uh, the Treasury who's included essentially this very same concept in the upcoming uh, financial services bill, which gives the FCA to strike people off immediately uh, if they haven't been using their authorization. And I think we said the this financial services bill should be coming back to the House of Commons in the spring. So that's something that's happening right away. Another, uh, you know, to your point, uh, Susanna, the FCA seems to have the ability to strike people off for not paying their bills to the FCA, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, not filing reg returns, uh, potentially not responding to regulatory requests. It's unclear how much of that goes on uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, one of the things that Rachel and I have reported on this year is this 4,000 firms who have failed to reply to two requests under Section 165 um, of, for this is to do with the financial resilience under, under COVID when the FCA was getting a little bit more information. So it will be interesting to see whether, you know, once the FCA has this power, whether these non-responders, whether any action is taken against them. Uh, I did ask the FCA about that and they didn't, uh, they declined to comment. Uh, but it is one of those things which I think once the regulator starts doing it, and I know I absolutely accept, Susanna, you, you, they've had the ability to do this. Um, it's obviously been tightened up, but a few examples of this do work, go a long way to making other people fall in line. Yeah, the, the phrase credible deterrence does spring to mind at about that point, yes. Yeah, it does. It, in, on, again, on the authorizations point, one of my overwhelming impressions from the TSC appearance between Randall's comments and Rathie's comments was that they really wanted to crack down on author, on authorizations on the uh, on the uh, granting side making it difficult 
for firms to come into the system. Now, this use it or lose it is going to have no impact on that whatsoever. And it's really unclear for, to me what they can do, how they can purport to be identifying harm at, and cutting people off at the authorization stage. Maybe they will be more difficult, but they've also been putting out data trying to show that they are being tough already and making it sound like they're really cracking down on firms in terms of authorization. So when Lindsay and I went and asked about, so what's the plan for getting tough on authorizations, they sent us back a link to a page that uh, was all about their consumer investments data review. And one of the examples they had uh, to tackle consumer harm in the investment market was they said they had revoked the authorization of 131 firms across all UK FCA regulated uh categories because of breaches of threshold conditions and they also implied in here that this was something was that was done you know as a harm prevention measure but what we found when i looked through the uh, reg intelligence database because we have all this stuff was that over the same period so this was from january to october uh 2020 so over the same period 70 of these 131 firms were essentially used car lots. And another 48 were, I mean, they were just like random things. One was a Cornish hot tub sales room. Another one was uh, Aberdeen Recycling, which Lindsay and I could not even figure out what that was. We think it might have been like a used clothing store. But then why do you need a credit card? I don't, I don't know. And then there was used musical instruments, cycle shops, and then there were a really small percentage of firms that were uh, like insurance brokers or uh, CM, uh, claims management firms, debt advice. And all of them were struck off because they hadn't paid the FCA dues or they hadn't filed a regulatory return. There was nothing having to do with any kind of harm whatsoever. So I, I thought it was, you know, a bit concerning that they were uh, trying to portray themselves as proactive in that way. Yeah. I just want to um, throw in... A sort of a, a future element of this as well. I know we'll probably come back to the Khalifa report at a, at a later date, but there is a conflict um, coming down the line between the desire to grow fintechs and authorization and potential consumer harm. If you look at the Christopher Woolard's review, which recommends uh, regulating the buy now, pay later firms, you know, so in terms of authorization, who's going to get authorized, who's not, you know, where the harm, that whole piece is not straightforward and it's, it's, it's going to be a headache. Uh, and the issue mostly with fintechs is they are very new. You have no track record. You have no history. You have to do obviously the usual up amounts of upfront due diligence. But for new firms, you need to do much more continuing due diligence in their early stages 
I mean, I know this is you know similar but different, but green cell, which we are all you know watching with interest at the moment, is exactly that a new company that was growing very, very fast. You could badge it a fintech without any problems. And yet it managed to completely fall apart very spectacularly, leaving debts basically around the world. I mean, those are the sorts of things, obviously, the regulator is going to try to preempt. But, you know, Greensill didn't start that way. Greensill came off the rails. So where was that continuing due diligence element? Because if you're looking at a firm that's got, you know, 10 years of track record, that's one thing. If you're looking at something that's somebody's bright idea and is going to conquer the world and make, I know, buy now, pay later, technology, smooth, easy, customer friendly, all the rest of it. How is the regulator going to have the line of sight, the skill sets, the knowledge, the awareness, the bravery, to, to use Rathi's words back to him, to actually say, I'm not comfortable with this particular approach, you're not having a license, or I'm taking your license away from you? Yeah, so that's a really excellent point, Susanna, and it really plays to a comment that Rathi made at Treasury Select Committee on almost precisely that same kind of question, which is how with the market changing so quickly, especially with technology and crypto, uh, there was a reference to the GameStop uh, phenomenon that happened. You know, the FCA is so slow moving how is it going to keep pace with this change in the market? And the answer is, we don't know, uh, because one of the things that Rafi said was that essentially they are focused on pensioners, people who have money, uh, people, you know, like these high net worth individuals, and you know, obviously at the lower end of the spectrum as well. So, you know, much older people, not the 25-year-old people who are on Robinhood punting on GameStop and uh, buying Bitcoin and whatnot. So that's an admitted gap right there. And I couldn't agree with you more that these new businesses coming in are going to be very different. And I think crypto is a great example of that. We were talking about that last week the three of or the four of us and we were saying you know good luck understanding that those businesses because the way they talk about what they think they're doing in the world is incomprehensible to human beings and it just sounds like made up stuff and it, it, it <laughs> I, think, does. I, think, so, I think that's a, that's totally but it's a podcast for another day Rachel <laughs> well, really yeah <laughs> for sure but I just I, I just wanted to kind of end on that note it, it's extremely difficult to keep up with that kind of stuff and this is the kind of business that the government via the Khalifa report via the Treasury wants to attract here and that is going to be risky and that is going to keep them on their toes for sure and they will have to be fast moving toes at that point I, I would suggest yes. twinkle toes for sure <laughs> Oh, that's a good way to wind things up. Um, so we are reaching the end of the time. So key takeaways from this. I mean, it does seem that, you know, at least on the surface, there is the potential for a huge amount of change with the regulator or at least the Financial Conduct Authority here in the UK. So 
Lindsay, key takeaways for you from all of this? Absolutely, Susanna. I 100% agree with you that there is reason to be optimistic. Um, the, you know, the, that was really enthused listening to Rathi and Randall at the Treasury Sec Committee. Um, what isn't clear um, is there is no line of sight yet on when these recommendations, especially those that would be delivered via changing primary legislation, are actually going to arrive. And just to make my Brexit point, that was what it was all supposed to be about. So, you know, moving fast, not having the EU slowness. So, you know, get to it. And thank you. And Rachel, takeaways? I think my takeaway would be this tension between what the government and the Treasury want and what the FCA can do and should be doing in terms of protecting investors, etc. I think that's going to be a point of tension and it's going to really crystallize in the fintech uh, space going forward. It's that's. I think it's going to be a tough one. I think we're going to have some uh, collateral damage here, especially on on the crypto side. Like I was saying, not a lot yeah. of uh, expertise in that. Uh, and the people who claim to be experts also, I, I'm not buying it. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Rachel and Lindsay, thank you so much. I think that was a brilliant Such a conversation. Pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Such a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, and and thank all of you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, we do hope you found it both interesting and useful. Now, Rachel and Lindsay referenced things they'd written about. We're going to put a selection of those articles in the episode notes. So please do download and read even more about Lindsay and Rachel's excellent stuff. Also in the episode notes is a download link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And as ever, last but not least, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know if you have any suggestions for future topics. Goodbye. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence.